We read God's Word this morning from two places. First in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 and following, and then in Acts chapter 4 and 5. First we turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we'll read beginning at verse 10 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 12, verse 10. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and for my soul, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and, a- and he asses and men servants and maidservants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold, thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Let's turn now to the book of Acts. Our interest is in the first part of Acts chapter 5, but for the sake of context, we will begin reading at Acts 4 verse 32. Acts 4 verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of his possessions which he possessed was his own, But they had all things in common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold the possession and kept back part of the price his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God." And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried 
thy husband are at the door, and they shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. We end our Scripture reading at that point. So on the basis of these passages and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 43. This is found in the back of our songbooks. On page 24, after all of the songs, page 24, what is required in the Ninth Commandment? that I bear false witness against no man, nor falsify any man's words, that I be no backbiter nor slanderer, that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceits as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God, unless likewise that in judgment and all of other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. Also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. For some time, our churches as a denomination have been embroiled in a controversy. And through the midst of it all, I wonder, is there any commandment that has been violated more through this controversy than this one? In other words, I believe you could make a strong case that of all the sins that have been committed across the denomination over the past year and a half or more, this sin stands out among them. For how many outright lies have been told? How often has fellow church member slandered fellow church member? How many times have we been quick to make a judgment? How many times have we made rash conclusions about this person or this thing? How often have we been guilty of spreading along hearsay and gossip that serve to defame the name and reputation of a neighbor. And we could give example after example after example. The point being, through this controversy, sins against the ninth commandment have abounded. And that makes this sermon very important. For this morning, we come to the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the ninth commandment. And the purpose of looking at this commandment is not so that we can all become better equipped to point the finger at everyone else. Look at all of their lies. Look at all of their deceit. Look at all of their falsehood. That's not the point. The point is so that we see our own sinfulness with respect to this ninth commandment. So that we see afresh our need for Jesus Christ. And at the same time, recognizing that there is indeed salvation in Christ, the sermon thereby propels us in a life of thankful obedience. A life that means being committed to the truth concerning our neighbor. So this morning we consider the ninth commandment in Lord's Day 43 using... That is our theme, committed to the truth 
concerning our neighbor. First, we'll look at the principled commandment. Second, we'll look at the devil's temptations. And then third, at the sympathetic Savior. First, we look at the commandment itself and we need to begin by seeing that there are two main principles that undergird this commandment, that serve as the basis upon which this commandment is built. Principle number one, our God is a God of truth. The Scriptures clearly testify of this. For example, Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that He should lie. God is incapable of lying. Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He, God, is faithful that promised. When God says something, you can count on that Word because He's faithful. And all this is underscoring the truth. Our God is a God of truth. He's true in His revelation to His people and His Word that He gives to us. He's true in His relationship to His people. He's reliable. He's dependable. And all of that because God is true. Truth in His very being. In His very essence. That's who God is. And we need to recognize this is true. Not just of God generally, but we can apply this especially and particularly to our Savior Jesus Christ. For what did He tell us when He was speaking to His disciples in John 14? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is truth. For He is the Word of God made flesh. He is God's self-disclosure. He's God's revelation of Himself so that Jesus Christ narrates the Father. If we can put it that way, So our God is a God of truth. And it's exactly for this reason that God therefore forbids all manner of lies, falsehood, and deceit. That's what the ninth commandment is all about. The ninth commandment is put in these words, thou shalt bear no false witness against thy neighbor. That is, we must not ever be guilty of lying under oath. And now, To be sure, this is something we do not face very often, but if you were an Old Testament Israelite and you did not have any sort of crime lab or forensic department, witnesses were incredibly important. And so this was a very important word, a particular word in that day, but we recognize that this particular example, not bearing false witness, is representative of all manner of sins that involve lying and falsehood and deceit. And they're all forbidden exactly because our God is a God of truth. Which means all manner of lies are really opposed to our God. And that comes out even in the explanation of this commandment in the Heidelberg Catechism. It says in the middle that we are to avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil. The devil is the one who is the father of the lie. And he uses the lie to oppose our God so that any lies that we commit are likewise really opposition against God and thus they are forbidden. So instead of engaging in the lie, we are to be committed to the truth. That's the the positive then. That's what the catechism brings out. Puts it beautifully. It says likewise that In judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth. Speak it uprightly and confess it. Saying we are to be committed to the truth. Committed to the truth concerning God to be sure. That's more the first commandment. Also includes being committed to the truth concerning ourselves. And we'll have more to say about that in the second point. But the main focus in the ninth commandment is being committed to the truth concerning our neighbor. Because this commandment falls in the second table of the law, which table is all about the duties that we owe toward our neighbor. So that is the first principle that undergirds this ninth commandment. Our God is a God of truth. Secondly, the other principle is that our neighbor's name and reputation 
is important. It's valuable. And that comes out in light of the teaching of Scripture regarding a good name and the value of it. For example, in Proverbs 22, verse 1, we read, a good name is rather to be chosen than riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Likewise, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment. So these verses are talking about a good name and the idea of a good name there is a man's reputation, his honor. And it's saying a good name is more important, more valuable than all manner of gold and silver or precious ointment. And it's exactly for that reason that it's therefore a sin to do damage to a man's reputation, to strip him of a good name. And we see how this fits with the other commandments. God forbids that we take a man's life, that we sin against his body or rob him of his him or her of his purity, that we take their possessions. These are all valuable things that God gives to each one of us. Our our life, our body, our possessions. And now we can add to that our name, our reputation, and our honor. And God forbids us of depriving the neighbor of his name, reputation, and honor just as He forbids us from taking any of those other things away from our neighbor. And therefore, we're not to defame the neighbor. Instead, we're to promote the neighbor. We're to see to it that the neighbor has a good name. And that's where the catechism ends. It says in the last lines, and also that I defend and promote as much as I am able the honor and good character of my neighbor. That I defend it. That I guard it. That I protect it and promote it. That is, I seek to advance it. I seek to do everything I can in my power so that my neighbor has a Good name. So those are the two principles. Our God is a God of truth. And a good name is valuable. It's important. And now we need to see that those two principles then are meant to govern the whole of our lives and especially our tongues, our ears, and our minds. That is, we must be careful little tongue what you say. We must be careful with our ears what they hear. And we must be careful with our minds what they think. First, concerning our tongues. In light of the two principles that we just explained, there are many things that are therefore forbidden for the child of God. Really for anyone in light of God's law. And what's forbidden includes any falsifying of man's words. That's what the catechism mentions. When I ask what's required in the ninth commandment, that I bear false witness against no man, we mentioned that. And now we come to this. Nor falsify any man's words. That is, we must not take a man's words and twist them. Distort them into something different so that we change the meaning altogether. This can happen by changing the very words themselves. Or this can happen by leaving out an important part. Or not taking these words in the the context of what was said or what was written. It's forbidden because commitment to the truth means insofar as I'm taking the words of another and passing them on to others, what is most important then is being accurate in harmony with in harmony with the truth of what was said or what was done. So no falsifying a man's words. Likewise, all slander and backbiting are forbidden. That's what the catechism mentions next. That I be no backbiter nor slanderer. Slander is the sin of making a false spoken statement about another that damages that person's reputation. In other words, slander is the sin of spreading a lie about someone that causes that person's name to stink in the eyes of men. And we all recognize that it's against both principles that we just set forth. It's not in harmony with the truth, and it serves to bring down the name and reputation of my neighbor. But not just slander is forbidden, also all backbiting. Backbiting is 
really any malicious talk about the neighbor who is not present. It's trying to take a bite out of his back as it were. It's important that the catechism includes this and mentions this because one might say something negative about a brother, but then immediately try to justify it and say, well, it's true what I said. I'm not lying. Well, that doesn't make it okay. Because the idea of backbiting is that it doesn't matter whether it's true or false. If the purpose in saying it is to cast the neighbor in a negative light, if the purpose in saying it is to bring down his name, well, then it's contrary to that second principle that we set forth at the outset of the sermon, and thus it's forbidden. And exactly because all backbiting and slander are forbidden means all hearsay and gossip is likewise forbidden. Catechism does not explicitly mention these, but they are implied because hearsay and gossip are fall into that gray area between backbiting and slander. Slanders, it's false. Backbiting, it could be true. Well, with hearsay and gossip, the reality is we don't know whether or not it's a lie or it's true, but we do recognize it is meant to bring down the name of our neighbor. And therefore, that likewise is forbidden. So instead of sinning in these various ways, instead, these principles govern our tongue so that when we speak about the neighbor, we're to speak well of the neighbor. That's the the positive aspect of it. Our words are to serve the purpose of building up the name, the reputation of our neighbor. And insofar as we do have knowledge of some sin or something that would serve to cast the neighbor in a negative light, we close our mouths. We bite our tongues. We do not allow those words to escape our lips but we keep it to ourselves. And in that way, we, we cover that sin. We, we hide it from the view of others. And we can do that, especially with fellow believers, because we recognize even if he is unaware that what he did was sin, I know my brother in Christ prays for the forgiveness of not just his sins generally, but his secret sins, the sins that he does not even know that he has committed. Therefore, I know that sin is forgiven. And if we cannot do that, if we cannot cover the sin, if it must be addressed, well then the only person we can open our mouths to is the person himself about whom we are tempted to talk to others. That is, with humility in our hearts, we go to the brother in order to correct him, in order to improve Him. And as we go the way of Matthew 18 to address that sin in the heart and life of the brother, you understand that accomplishes two purposes. On the one hand, it means we can help the brother see his sin so that he can be brought to repentance. While at the same time, talking only to the brother means preserving his name and reputation. Whereas if I go and tell others about it, Well, then neither of those things is accomplished because the brother is never going to be improved. And instead, his name will be damaged. It will be ruined. So you see how these two principles, our God is a God of truth and the name of our neighbor's importance, valuable, governs our tongues and what we say. These principles also govern our ears. That secondly... They govern our ears in such a way that we must be careful that when we hear something, we do not make rash judgments. That's what the catechism brings out in this question and answer. After talking about forbidding all backbiting and slander, it adds that I do not judge nor join in condemning any man rashly or unheard. So we're not to judge or condemn any man rashly or unheard. And that's important because 
That's what we're most inclined to do. We hear something said about someone, and the inclination for us is to draw a conclusion right away. So that in essence, that person is tried, convicted, and condemned in an instant. Guilty. Guilty as charged by this other person. When the reality is there's more to the story. I haven't heard this other person's side of their story. All I have is this fragment of information from somebody else. Because that's all I have. I'm not to draw conclusions. I'm not to render some judgment on the matter. This was wrong until I know more fully. And now to be sure, if some declaration regarding a person is coming from those in a position of authority, it's not rash judgment to believe it in that case. In other words, if there's some authority, whether the state or the church, that says so-and-so is guilty of this sin, we do not have to go perform our own private investigation before we could ever believe them. Because the key is, God puts people in positions of authority to make those sorts of judgments on matters. And when it comes from them in that case, then okay, we may believe it. But when it's coming from the mouth of an individual, of someone who's not in a position of authority especially, then we must not be guilty of hearing something and then immediately making a rash judgment. So that has to do with our ears. But there's more we have to say about our ears and how these principles govern what we hear. Because the reality is that at times we must guard our ears from allowing them to hear the name of a brother slandered or cast in a negative light. And that means at times it may be necessary to tell someone to stop. You're in a conversation. Someone mentions, did you hear about so-and-so? And it becomes clear fairly quickly that this is not just a cute story. This is not just some news about how they're doing from a with regard to their health. But instead, what is being said about so-and-so is clearly putting them in a negative light. It's clearly throwing dirt at the name, the reputation of that person. If that's the case, in light of that second principle, it becomes necessary to say, excuse me, I am sorry to interrupt, but I'm uncomfortable with how you are talking about this person. I would not want such things said about me. And therefore, I think we need to move on in this conversation. And if you feel the need to talk about this, then you need to go to that person about whom you were going to say those things. Have the Word with them, not with us. That's guarding our ears and being careful with what they hear. But now, not only do these principles govern our tongues, what we say, not only do they govern our ears, what we hear, they also govern our minds and what we think. That is, how we view the neighbor. And they govern them in such a way that the reality is we must not even be guilty of thinking evil about the neighbor, about our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is something that Calvin points out in his own catechism and his explanation of the ninth commandment. He says that it forbids not only evil speaking, but also evil thinking. And the explanation that Calvin gives is simple and straightforward. If God forbids us to use our tongues and say it to a neighbor, then it follows that wishing it with our minds is likewise wrong. If it's sinful in the eyes of other people, well then it's sinful in the eyes of God, even if it's only in our heart and in our thoughts. And we recognize that this is in harmony with the whole intent of the law. 
These laws are not meant to govern merely our words and our deeds and everything external, but the, the laws aimed at our hearts and what goes on within. And therefore, we recognize the truth of what Calvin adds to this commandment that it forbids not only evil speaking, but evil thinking. Instead of that, from a positive point of view, it means we are to interpret everything that our neighbor does in the best possible light. And that's what Luther brings out in his catechism. Luther likewise had a catechism. He explained the ninth the Ten Commandments, and when he came to this commandment, the last thing that he has to say is that very thing that this commandment means interpreting what our neighbor does in the best possible light. And how important that word is for us who are tempted to jump to the worst possible conclusion who are tempted to hear something or to observe something and interpret it in the the worst possible manner, in a negative light. Now to be sure, we can go to the other extreme as well. It can be that on account of the fact that we, we like somebody, that we begin to pass over their sins to the point that we're winking at sin when it really does need to be addressed. We need to guard against that. But the main point here is guarding against the greater temptation of because I don't like that person. Because he's rubbed me the wrong way in the past, I am therefore going to interpret everything he does in the worst possible manner. I'm going to throw out the judgment of charity. But since God is the God of truth, because our neighbor's name and reputation is valuable and important. We are to give others the benefit of the doubt. So that is what's all included in this commandment as we understand this commandment based on those two principles. Now we want to look at how the devil tempts us to walk in this sin. Because the devil does indeed want us to set aside the truth and to embrace the lie. The devil would have us defame our neighbors, tear their names down in in the eyes of others. And to accomplish this, the devil holds out bait. He seeks to allure us. And now in order to understand that bait, what he how he tempts us, I believe it's necessary to make a distinction between Lies that we say about ourselves and the lies that we tell about others. And that distinction is necessary because I do believe that the bait is slightly different. And it's helpful to see how the devil works in each case. So first, we want to look at all the lies that we're tempted to tell about ourselves. And the allure that the devil holds out here is the prospect of self-preservation and self-promotion. And I believe most lies, if not all lies that we tell about ourselves can fit under one of those two categories. And we say that in light of the histories that we read. Abraham is the example of lying for the sake of self-preservation. Abram had moved down to Egypt due to a famine. He recognized his wife was very beautiful to look upon and he was worried that the Egyptians would kill him for the sake of getting his wife. And so what does he do? He tells his wife, tell them, you are my sister. A half-truth, but not the whole truth. Because the reality is, she was not merely his sister, half-sister. It was, she was his wife. So Abraham lied. Why? for the sake of self-preservation because he did not want harm to come upon him. Does that not explain why we too often lie? Does that not explain why our children sometimes lie? 
My son, my daughter, tell me what happened. Why is your sibling crying? And they lie about it. Because they don't want that discipline to come upon them. That's self-preservation. Why do we sometimes lie about our own Christianity? Why do we sometimes conceal it? Cover it up a little bit? Because we don't want others, co-workers or neighbors, to to think poorly of us. We don't want them to have a, a bad attitude toward us because we're those Christians. Again, it's self-preservation. And that's what the devil holds out as, a, as the bait to get us to fall into this sin. But that's only half of what the devil has to use because not only are we tempted to lie on account of self-preservation, we're also tempted to lie for the sake of self-promotion. And here the example is Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira saw how others had taken their possessions, sold them, and then given the money to the church for the care of the poor. And no doubt there was a certain aura about those people. Wow, look at how generous and loving and kind they are. And that looked good to Ananias and Sapphira. So they hatched their plan. We'll sell our property and we'll keep part of it for ourselves, but we'll say we're giving the whole of what we received for our property. And understand, the sin that they committed was not that they kept part of it back for themselves. Their sin was that they kept part back, but said they were giving the whole. They lied. And why? For the sake of self-promotion. So that others would think highly of them. So that others would all of a sudden have a, a high estimation of Ananias and Sapphira. Look how loving they are. Look how great they are. And is that not why we lie? Is that not why we lie in our business dealings? Why we're tempted to cheat here or there? for the sake of getting ahead. It's just for the sake of more money. Is that not why we lie when we are recounting some story about ourselves, some adventure that we had, and we, we twist it a little bit, we, we make it a little bit better than it actually was because we want everyone to have a high regard for me. We want to appear good in the eyes of others so that it's self-promotion that likewise drives us to commit sins against the Ninth Commandment. And you see that what lies behind both of these is ultimately the fear and favor of man. And Scripture warns about such fear of men. For example, in Proverbs 29, verse 25, we read, the fear of man bringeth a snare. And indeed, we see that in these histories. Abraham was ensnared by the fear of man. He was more worried about what others could do to him than doing what was right in God's eyes. Likewise, Ananias and Sapphira were gripped with the, the desire for the favor of men. And so it is for us. It's the fear and favor of men that often leads us to lie about ourselves. That means the remedy that we stand in need of is fear of God. Reverence of our God. So that we're not concerned about what others may think, what others may say, what others might even do to us. But instead, our concern is first and foremost with our God and doing that which is right in His eyes. So that is the bait that the devil holds out with regards to the lies we speak concerning ourselves. Self-promotion, self-preservation, the heart of which is the fear of man, and thus we need the fear of God. But what about the lies that we tell about others? I believe the bait that the devil holds out here is our own sense of self-righteousness. Why is it that we are so quick to hear and to tell things that cast the neighbor in a negative light? One answer, and a legitimate answer, 
is pure hatred for the neighbor. That is a factor. That's a part of it. That person has wronged me in the past and therefore I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to tear down his name. It's a part of it. Yet, there's something deeper here because the reality is there are many times where we're guilty of backbiting or slander or making rash judgments, not on account of any sort of explicit hatred for the neighbor. There's no desire for revenge, but we, we do it simply for the pleasure of it. Why? Because it feeds our own sense of self-importance. Because it makes us feel superior to that person. Because it strokes our ego. And is not the heart of all of this, beloved, our own self-righteousness? Does that not explain why we're so quick to hear or to tell the sins of others to anyone that we can? The reason is because there's a Pharisee in the heart of every one of us. The reason is that it enables me to conclude I am better than that person. Think about it. Think about some conversation in which you are recounting the sins of another person or something shameful that they did. As you tell that story, what is clearly implied the whole time? I would never do that. He might do something so sinful. He might do something so foolish. But not me. And is that not why we like to hear it too? Why we find it so difficult to stop someone else from defaming a neighbor? Why we take pleasure in it? Why we'd rather hear evil about someone than good about another person? Because when we hear that evil, then it, I'm able to say, well, I recognize I'm a sinner. At least I didn't do that. At least I'm not that sinful. And therefore, we can conclude, surely then I am more worthy of God's love and favor than him or her. Surely, if God had to pick between the two of us to be one of His chosen, He's going to pick me and not her, because I'm better than them. It's self-righteous pride that fuels our lies about others and all of our backbiting and all of the hearsay and the gossip. And it's important that we ask whether or not this is indeed true in our hearts with respect to what we have to say about those who have left our denomination and our churches. As those who love the church, we rightly talk about what's going on in the life of the church. But an awful lot of what we have to say amongst each other seems to be focused on the sinful behavior and the unchristian conduct of those who've left the denomination. And now I'm not saying any and every mention of that is necessarily sinful, because perhaps it needs to be said as a warning to those who are tempted to follow. Christ told us, by their fruits you shall know them. Therefore, I warn you against joining that group. Or maybe it's for the sake of defending the name, the, the reputation of our own denomination, or of someone in the denomination 
so that it becomes necessary to point out what is being said here is in fact a lie. But that said, we all need to ask the question, is that really why we have so much to say about the sinfulness of those who left? Or is it because it feeds my own sense of self-righteousness? I'm better than they are. Insofar as that's what's in our hearts, it's sin and it needs to stop. And indeed, we are sinners here. And we need to recognize that on account of our sins, we deserve grievous consequences because there are indeed consequences to this sin. Understood the bait that the devil holds out. We also need to see that there's a hook standing behind that bait. And there's something we can say in light of each of the histories that we went through. First of all, there's the hook that this sin brings shame. And we say that in light of the history with Abraham. For you see, our sovereign God has a way of exposing our lies. He has a way of uncovering them so that the truth of the matter does come out. And that's what happened with Abram. He told a lie and God controlled the circumstances so that Pharaoh found out that he was lying. And what shame that brought for Abraham. Here, godless Pharaoh appears more noble, more honorable than Abram himself. Well, so it can be for us. When we walk in the sin of lying and using deceit, God has ways of uncovering that, of exposing that, and ultimately, thereby bringing shame. And maybe it becomes so bad that our shame is that no one can even believe a word that comes out of our mouths. No one can trust anything that we have to say. This can also be true insofar as we are always the one tearing down the name of others. Insofar as we are the ones who are always guilty of backbiting and slander, soon enough that becomes our reputation. That nothing good ever comes out of so-and-so's mouth so that in the end, our shame for being the slanderer or backbiter is really worse than any shame we could bring on account of what we say about others. So first of all, this sin brings shame. Second, and much more importantly, the sin brings death. And that's what comes out with Ananias and Sapphira. God struck them down dead for their sin of lying. And that's what we deserve. Not just physical death, but the spiritual death to which it points. And that's what the catechism gets at when it calls us to avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil unless I would bring down upon me the heavy wrath of God. What an expression that is. Bring down, pull down the heavy wrath of God upon me for my sin. That's what I deserve. What we deserve is that I tell a lie even if it's a, a half-truth. What we deserve is that every lie is like pulling on some cord that causes the avalanche of God's wrath to come down upon us. That's what we deserve for this sin. And it's recognizing our own sinfulness. We must then look to our Savior Jesus Christ. Our sympathetic Savior in whom alone there is forgiveness. That is, the solution this morning is not to say, well, I recognize I've sinned in this respect, but I swear I'm done. I'm all done and then then God will receive me on account of being done with the lie. We'll get to the point where we need to say, I'm done lying, but it's not to try to be right with our God. It's not to try to 
earn our way back into His favor. Instead, we must look to Christ. We look to Him for forgiveness and for righteousness. For it's found only in Him. We look to Him for forgiveness because Jesus Christ did indeed pay the debt that we owe for our sins. He did so by taking our sin upon Himself, including sins against the ninth commandment. And that's really quite remarkable when you stop and think about it. The One who is truth was willing to bear our lies. The One who is completely committed to the truth. Not only concerning God, but also concerning the neighbor. Had our guilt and shame put upon His shoulders for all of our deceit and falsehood. It's astounding when you think about it. It becomes all the more remarkable when you remember that He took that sin the cross of Calvary. And there He endured the punishment that we deserve for it. There at the cross, God struck Him down in a way that was far worse than the striking down of Ananias and Sapphira. For God struck Him down with His wrath. It was as though God Himself pulled the cord, shut out the lights, And down came the avalanche of His wrath upon His own beloved Son. And Christ endured all that for you and for me so that there might be forgiveness for our sins. And so we look to Christ. We look to Christ not only for forgiveness, we look to Him for our righteousness, for our standing before God. We look to Him as the only one Whoever kept this commandment perfectly, who obeyed all of God's commandments perfectly, including this one, for never once did even the smallest lie escape the lips of our Savior. But He was perfectly committed to the truth. Never once did Jesus Christ resort to backbiting or slander, but in all that He did, He was ever building up the name, the reputation of His neighbor. He never once sinned in this respect. He never once sinned because he was not tempted. Let me back up. He never once sinned because he never once gave in to the temptation for the desire of self promotion or self preservation. He was not guilty of those heart sins. He was not guilty of. Worrying simply about preserving himself. How could he? His entire ministry was really one long death march leading to the cross. If even for an instant, Christ was consumed with a sinful desire for self-preservation. He would have immediately departed from the path leading to the cross. That sin was not in his heart, nor was the sin of a sinful desire for self promotion. And how could that be in the heart of our Savior? Because we're talking about the one who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And yet he made himself of no reputation, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He became obedient to the will of God. Obedient even unto the death of the cross. There's no sinful desire for self-promotion in His heart. And all of this is to say that Christ is the One who kept this commandment along with all the others perfectly. And thus we look to Christ for our righteousness. Because it's this perfect obedience that's made ours by faith in Christ. It's His obedience that's the basis 
for our justification, the basis for our right to eternal life. And I trust you have not wearied of this application coming at this point in nearly every sermon we've heard on the Ten Commandments. I trust this application has not grown old and tired. Because this is our salvation. And it's exactly because we have this salvation that we now want to serve our God by keeping the whole of His law and by being committed to the truth concerning our neighbor. That's our motivation. Gratitude for the salvation that we have. And so we look to Christ this morning. But now there's one more thing that needs to be said. And that is, not only do we look to Christ for salvation from our sins against the ninth commandment, we also look to Christ as our sympathetic high priest in light of the pain and hurt that we experience as those who are often lied about. Who endure slander. Yes, the first and most important application is seeing our own sins here. We've spent the entire sermon on that. It's also necessary though to address the reality that we too are sinned against in this way. This is a part of our lives. We know what it is to have our name torn down by others. We know what it is to be the object of the backbiting, the slander, the gossip, the hearsay. And we know the hurt, the tears, the sorrow that comes from that. But beloved, we have a sympathetic Savior. Because more than anyone, He endured all manner of reproach, mockery, and slander. His whole life He was spoken evil of by His enemies, especially during His ministry. Take one example. Here He is performing all these miracles. And what are His enemies trying to convince others? He does it by the power of Beelzebub. That's the truth concerning it. He's casting out devils in that way. And it's a bold-faced lie. His name is slandered. It's reproached. And that's one example from His ministry. The other main example is His trial. And that He was and that false witnesses were indeed brought against Him. Men came to testify. Men who spoke false reports. Men who took His words about tearing down the temple and raising it up again and twisting them to mean something that they did not mean. And beloved congregation, do not imagine that none of this touched Him. Do not imagine that Jesus was somehow calloused to it all. That it never once caused Him any sort of hurt. Because the reality is He felt it. And it's exactly because He felt it that He is our sympathetic High Priest who is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. He knows the hurt, the pain, the tears, the sorrow. And thus, when we cry to Him, we can be sure He will hear us. And what is more, knowing that He endured it all, does that not give us all the more reason 
to appreciate His saving work, when we ourselves taste a little bit of it, You see, we can grow in our affinity toward our Savior when we begin to understand something of when He endured, when we ourselves taste that in some small way. And it makes His saving work all the more wonderful. So let us look to Christ for forgiveness, for righteousness, for the motivation to keep this commandment. And let us look to Christ in times when we too are sinned against. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for this Word. Apply it to our hearts. Cause it to bear fruit in our lives and make us committed to the truth concerning our neighbor. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.